Hello, my friends. Today we're talking to Scott, co-founder and CEO of Azul. And we discuss how there's currently a trillion dollars of market cap being weighed down by cloud costs, different tactics for mitigating cloud costs, and how Azul's extremely efficient Java runtime can help you reduce the number of instances your company needs to run an application. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So tell me a little bit about your backstory. How did you how did your career get started and end up where you're at today? Well, uh, as you mentioned in your background, you know, I've I've been a technology fan since as long as I can remember, dating back to the days of the original uh, Radio Shack TRS-80. My school bought a couple of these when I was in second grade, I think, uh, one of the first you know, true personal computers. And I started messing around with those using the uh, what was called the basic programming language and, and uh, really started to, to get you know, interested in computers that, of course, evolved into the various Apple computers, Apple One, Apple Two. You mentioned your background in music. Early on, I was a piano player also, and one of my nice. initial forays into, you know, kind of marrying computers and, and uh, audio in general was um, in the early days of Apple, you couldn't even generate a beep without programming that. And so being <laughs> able to basically, you know, figure out a way to play a basic Mozart song by, you know, literally loops and, you know, changing frequencies, you know, down into literally coding every single note that was kind of the the way that it was back in the day so you know really have uh, just continued to progress uh, i went to uh, to princeton and uh, got my undergraduate education there uh, with a bachelor of science in electrical engineering which was you know a wonderful uh, educational background um, princeton in general is a very foundational educational background and so i was exposed to a variety of different things within the engineering disciplines and, and ultimately really seemed to gravitate towards a combination of, of hardware engineering as well as a lot of, of computer science. And so my first job out of school was uh, at Silicon Graphics or SGI. And uh, this is in uh, the early 90s, which at the time in Silicon Valley, where I moved to, uh, there was no greater company to work for. It was a, a who's who of, of technical talent fantastic as a young engineer to really learn how to do things right. And, you know, we were building some really kick-ass hardware at the time. And if you remember it again, back in the day, may date you a little bit, but, you know, like, for example, the original Jurassic Park, which would just, you know, wowed people and yeah. Terminator and movies like that, that people had never seen those types of special effects before. And that was all done using SGI hardware and, and, uh, and graphics technology. And, and that was a very, very exciting place to work. So that began my career. I then left to join a smaller company that was acquired. Uh, we started doing various uh, graphics boards for more uh, consumer uh, PCs. And then I started my first company in 1995. That was a company called 3DFX. I founded that with two other people. And, you know, we were really part of the, the, the PC 3D revolution. Uh, what you take for granted today when you when you bring up you know on your PC or Mac or whatever, and you can do all these amazing 3D games and other other applications for 3D. 
um, that didn't exist in the mid nineties. And so, um, uh, 3d effects was really a pioneer in terms of, of making very high quality 3d graphics, uh, consumable at, uh, PC price points. And so we took 3d effects public, uh, within a couple of years. And then eventually we sold that to NVIDIA who, you know, I think people would recognize still as uh, far and away the, the leader in, uh, in graphics these days. So that was an exciting time. And, um, after selling 3d effects to NVIDIA, I was looking for kind of the next big thing. And, you know, I, I was introduced to uh, a couple of other people, Gil Tanay and Sean Polamari. And we really had a, uh, a, a, this is classic Silicon Valley meeting in a coffee shop uh, kind <laughs> of thing. And, and uh, you know, we picked the coffee shop that happened to have Wi-Fi connections. So again, you know, 2000 era, not every coffee shop had wireless. And so we picked the one that did and, and, you know, met there and brainstormed there and ultimately got very excited about the revolution that was coming in, in this language called Java. And we felt that, um, it, you know, changes in terms of how developers program computers and applications, these don't come around very often. And, and we felt that the Java was headed down a path to really revolutionize how applications uh, would be developed across really every spectrum, everything from embedded to mobile to desktops to servers. And what we uh, narrowed in on was really the opportunity in terms of, of making a better Java platform for the server side of things. So big enterprises running big data centers, you know, mission critical revenue generating applications. And we thought that was a very exciting market to, to go after. So we started Azul uh, in 2002 to go after that market. The original uh, Azul business model was based on uh, very innovative products, designing our own custom microprocessors to run Java. And um, we raised um, a lot of venture capital money from some of the, the, the top best known VCs in, in Silicon Valley and had good success building those products, really did a number of pioneering things and had acquired a great number of customers. What we found, though, is that being in the hardware business and certainly building your own microprocessor is a very, very challenging thing because you're always competing against truly the big boys. And ultimately, what we heard from our customers is even though they, they felt our products were phenomenal and, um, and really were embracing them, that when we looked at where the cloud was heading, commodity uh, computers, et cetera, that really we wanted to pivot our product offerings to pure software. And so we began that journey around 2010. And that, that transition from hardware-based products to software-based products has really catapulted Azul to where it is today. You know, we're a very high-growth company. We serve uh, predominantly global 5,000 uh, types of customers that basically, you know, are able to, um, to deliver a better Java platform for their, their business-critical applications. That is super cool. So I do want to just highlight that uh, the 3DFX is really cool to me because, I mean, I really enjoyed video games uh, <laughs> growing up. And I also, when I was talking to your colleague Alex ahead of this interview, he mentioned to me that it was a really cool experience for him getting to like work with you because um, voodoo cards like changed the way he was able to play games. And I didn't realize though. That it was, it was a, it was a great company. Yeah. I still get emails a couple of months probably of, of people that are fans of 3d effects and, you know, still have their voodoo boards and, you know, ask nice. me for drivers for their voodoo boards and, and stuff like that. So 
you know, it was, it was a lot of fun to be part of, of, you know, that revolution and, and, uh, and graphics for the, for the PC. Yeah. I mean, different like components of computers, particularly gaming computers definitely get their cult followings, um, for that, that community of like building your own gear and, and to game on. Um, so that, that's really cool. That, Undoubtedly. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I, I want to get into the, the cloud paradox. Cause as I mentioned earlier, I was like reading over that article you wrote in Forbes on it. And, um, so the software solution that Azul is now running as its flagship product is a Java runtime. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Yep. So, uh, Tell me a little bit about the the cloud paradox just in general so we can set that context for the audience. And then I want to hear about how your your Java runtime like plays into that after. So the, the cloud paradox um, in, in general, what what that is all about is, is basically this balancing act between being able to embrace public cloud and all the advantages that come along with public cloud. And, and by public cloud, I'm talking about enterprises that use AWS from Amazon, use Azure from Microsoft, use the Google Cloud. And I think for most listeners, you probably have an appreciation for the advantages of, of cloud computing in general. Um, get much greater scalability, allowed for much you know, more efficient and rapid deployment, being able to use uh, cloud capacity as needed. In other words, you know, when your applications need more computer storage or bandwidth, you just add more and it just is there because it's in the cloud. It's like an infinite amount of, of resource. So all those things are, are fantastic. And, um, you know, really the industry more and more um, is not only embracing cloud, but really thinking about cloud as their first type of deployment. So, you know, we've moved away from moving applications from, you know, traditional on-prem data centers or hosted data centers. And now now developers and architects are are really thinking about cloud first in terms of as they, they think about new applications to develop new applications. So cloud is certainly a, a, a true foundational change in terms of, of how enterprise IT works. The paradox as the aspect of the cloud paradox uh, concept is really all the advantages of cloud are wonderful, but one of the challenges associated with the cloud is cost. And um, one of the sort of the unknown secret, if you will, of cloud is that once enterprises uh, start to embrace cloud more and more, uh, more and more applications, uh, more and more use of it, when you actually take a step back and look at the underlying uh, costs that they're paying Amazon or Microsoft or Google, it actually is significantly more expensive in terms of, you know, again, paying for the compute, the storage, the network, significantly more expensive than if they would have stayed on-prem or in a more traditional hosted ISP type of, of, uh, of infrastructure. And that creates a challenge because at the end of the day, there are significant advantages from agility and flexibility and reliability and, you know, those types of things associated with the cloud. But how much is that worth paying for? And if you're talking about 5 to 10%, maybe 15%, that's a reasonable cloud tax because of the added flexibility. But when you're talking more profoundly 2x, 3x, 4x, and we see and hear from our customers all the time that that is the cost of cloud for them 
apples to apples comparing you know that infrastructure from from an on-prem type of deployment to the cloud deployment that is out of balance right and so the cloud paradox talks to the fact that especially with so many customers with so many enterprises now where their expenses directly impact their, their cloud expenses directly impact the bottom line that you can literally map the cloud costs to the market capitalization of a public company. And, um, you know, many of the public companies now, for example, if they're SaaS companies, you know, their, their net income, their earnings, you know, if the more that they spend on cloud, they're less they're going to make on their earnings. And so uh, the cloud paradox was originally coined uh, from a blog post from a couple people at, at the, the venture, venture capital firm uh, Andreessen Horowitz. And their analysis suggested that there's almost a trillion dollars of market cap that is being impacted by cost of cloud. And, um, you know, whether it's a trillion or 500 billion or some other very large number, the precise, at, the precise number is not relevant. The point of it being that there is literally a significant anchor that is weighing down market capitalization of, uh, of these public software firms. Conceptually, it's simple. It all comes down to cloud cost. But what do you do about that? And so, you know, part of our uh, the, the tools and, and the capabilities that we offer our customers with our products and, and expertise is helping them manage their cloud costs. And there is no one simple answer. It's multifaceted and there's a lot of different things that enterprises need to do to keep their clock their cloud costs in line however you know, our products and our expertise are, are one aspect that can be quite compelling in terms of, of reining in you know this the spiraling cloud cost problem so I I saw on your article you broke it down into like four stages of cloud adoption laggards and early adopters being two of those stages that I think most people are familiar with uh, but then the others being cloud paradox victims and value optimized leaders and the cloud paradox victims is a category that's rapidly growing, but why is it still rapidly growing if this is like a well-known problem? Like, why aren't people taking steps to avoid falling into the trap? Oh, I think they absolutely are taking steps, um, but the reality is the problems are challenging. And that's why, you know, you, you get into, um, you know, that phase of the overall cloud journey. It's a complicated problem um, because, again, there's so many benefits of being in cloud that oftentimes what we see is enterprises become a victim of their own success. And before they know it, you know, they they are dealing with, you know, an infrastructure that is not particularly manageable or visible. Um, they're dealing with, you know, runaway instances that they didn't even know, you know, actually were running. But, you know, by the end of the, the week or the month when they get their Amazon bill, now they see it. And so um, a lot of these problems are, are unique to the cloud and new to the cloud. And it's it's not surprising that so many enterprises, you know, fall into it because, you know, they are new challenges and new processes and new techniques and new solutions have to be brought to bear in terms of being able to, you know, optimize their, their cloud cost infrastructure. And so there's a lot of different things. And if you think about, you know, the kind of the, the, the major tenants of where cloud cost comes from, you know, compute storage, networking, um, and, and, you know, overall, 
being able to monitor and manage, you know, all those different resources is really critical. And there's different techniques um, that enterprises use in terms of, you know, reducing their costs associated with, you know, each of those major categories. Azul specifically addresses the compute side of things. And uh, we can get into that in a minute. But, you know, being able to reduce the number of instances that a given enterprise has to deploy to be able to service a given uh, application, given its volume needs, its number of user needs, its SLA, which means, you know, how quick does it need to respond or, you know, how much bandwidth or how much traffic does it need to be able to process? Um, All of those things impact the amount of instances that need to be purchased from uh, a cloud provider and you pay for one of those every single instance that you you use you pay for whether that's you know on a annual basis if you if you you know buy ahead and you get some benefits of of buying buying ahead or um, many enterprises end up just paying on demand and you know every time they use an instance they're going to be charged for that and so um, anything that you can do to reduce the number of instances needed you know, has a direct correlation to a cost that an enterprise will pay um, to the cloud provider. We've actually done a couple interviews recently with a company called Spot. They're owned by NetApp, and they actually help you identify uh, spot instances, is what they, they call them, that, yeah, that are just lower cost, where, where less usage is happening there so they're able to purchase the instances at a much lower rate than usual with like the on-demand uh purchasing but from what they show save like a ton of money by doing that which is really cool um but what are some of the other techniques yeah that's why i described uh, you know the being able to you know really have an optimized cloud cost um, is a multifaceted problem Right. As you mentioned, for example, just in that realm of, of compute, that needs to be optimized in a variety of different ways. For example, you can buy big instances or you can buy small instances, you can buy reserved instances or you can buy spot instances. And all of those are going to have different uh, cost ramifications and, 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 and to them. And so, you know, various companies, um, you know, look at those those um, different scenarios and it all comes down to, you know, what is the use case for a given application? And um, this is, again, why it becomes very complicated very quickly, because a given enterprise might have 100 different applications. It could have a 1,000 different applications. And each of those different applications is going to have different characteristics in terms of, well, what's the, what's the right approach for this application? It could be that that application is largely dormant, meaning it's not doing a whole lot on a regular basis. But then, you know, maybe it's the end of a trading day or maybe it's during, a you know, a, an end of Friday sale. Then you get this huge spike in demand, right? And something like that, a spot instance strategy can be fantastic because you don't want to pay all the time for something that you only use very infrequently. Alternatively, there's other applications, for example, like a website, right? A website is constantly on and you know even though website traffic varies it is fairly predictable in terms of how much compute storage bandwidth that you need to run a given corporate website and in that case you what you really want is you know buying ahead i'm willing to pay amazon 
you know, a full year or maybe in a full three years worth of, uh, of compute capacity because I have very good predictability in terms of how much I need. And that's always going to be the cheapest. If you're willing to commit for, you know, a certain number of instances for, you know, a longer period of time, that's always going to be the most cost effective way to go. So, and again, if you have to make this decision across hundreds of thousands of different applications, you can, you know, gain appreciation for why this problem actually is, is quite complicated. So there's techniques like that. In addition to that, there's techniques like just, you know, making your application more efficient so that you don't even need as many compute instances, period, regardless of which which compute instance. Like, how do I just, you know, instead of a thousand compute instances, how do I get that to 500, right? Just the most basic math. How do you do that? And uh, there are software solutions like what Azul provides that allows you to, you know, literally just, you know, cut in half the number of compute instances needed because you're running, you know, a more efficient software platform. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about what Azul does and how that plays into this. Yeah. So Azul provides Java platforms um, for enterprise uh, uh, customers. And the Java programming language, uh, which was invented back in the, in the mid-90s uh, by Sun, um, now, of course, owned by Oracle, Java represents the grand majority and most popular programming language for enterprise applications. And while there are other choices other than Java, Java remains the number one in terms of, you know, mission critical, business critical applications that need high throughput, high stability, high security, you know, all those types of things. Java remain, is and remains far and away the, the language of choice for that. The way that a Java program works is that a, a developer and team of developers um, at an enterprise will will create a, a, an application, write it in Java or write it in a language that uses Java. And there is a piece of software that is installed on a server called a Java virtual machine or um, a, a JVM is the parlance or JDK. They all kind of mean the same thing. And at the end of the day, that JVM software is installed and is responsible for running the application. You can think about it a little bit like an operating system, right? A Windows or a Linux operating system that is also required to be installed on the server to be able to run an application. Well, the JVM is another layer of software that sits on top of the operating system and is responsible for running uh, a Java-based application. And so anything that is developed in Java requires a JVM to run. It's one of the reasons that there are 50 billion instances of Java running at any given point in time. It's a massively deployed, very, very popular, truly everywhere. It's, uh, it's almost impossible to look around without being able to you know, see an example of Java being used you know, really everywhere. And so uh, as a result of that, the efficiency of the, the JVM running the Java application is, you know, fundamental to how much uh, server infrastructure you need, how fast an application will be, how many users that application can support, how much data and, and throughput can that application support. So in a very simple manner, the more efficient your JVM, the more efficient your application. The more efficient your JVM, the less number of computers, servers, cloud instances that you need. And so all JVMs are not created equal. 
you know, and so what we have in the form of our uh, flagship product, which is called Azul Platform Prime, is in essence a better JVM, faster, more performant, more scalable, more deterministic, that allows for applications to run faster. So a job application running on something like the Oracle JVM will not run as well in terms of throughput, speed, consistency of performance, those types of things will not run as well compared to uh, when that same application runs on the Azul Platform Prime JVM. And the benefit really can be taken advantage of in multiple different ways. Um, it can be better customer experience. It can be like, say, for example, in the case of a, of a, a trading application, it can mean that you're trading faster. You're actually you know, um, being able to be more competitive uh, uh, relative to uh, your competition. So you can use speed simply for benefits of speed, which I think are fairly obvious. But you can also use the, the speed and performance benefits of, of Platform Prime to actually reduce the number of compute instances that are needed in the cloud. And you know we find that our customers oftentimes can, instead of, again, needing, say, for example, 100 compute instances, they're paying Amazon for every single one of those, when they simply, instead of using, for example, something like the Oracle JDK, when they move to Platform Prime, instead of those 100 compute instances needed, maybe they only need 80 or 70, or in some cases, 50. So the fact that compute instances in the cloud can so quickly be changed, whether that's adding or, or reducing, you know, we find customers who deploy Platform Prime literally the next day can start saving on their Amazon or Microsoft or Google bill. So it's quite profound. That's crazy. That's got to be an easy sell. <laughs> Just immediate money. So do you have like uh, a, yeah. <laughs> do you have a number of like an, the efficiency jump that you get when going from like the Oracle to the platform prime or does that vary quite a bit depending on the application? It, it does vary on the application, um, just to be be honest. And, and, you know, there are cases for some reason that maybe the application actually doesn't get a lot of benefit because at the end of the day, you know, it could be limited by, by other reasons, could be limited by how quickly storage can be accessed or could be limited by network latency or these types of things. So not every application is going to be limited by how fast the, you know, the Java app itself is running, but most applications are. And, um, you know, we see it does vary again by application, but if, if we're able to reduce, if we're able to improve the speed, for example, of, uh, of an application by 2x, right? So instead of being able to handle 10,000 requests a second, we can handle 20,000 requests a second when running on the platform prime. You can use that benefit of performance to cut your infrastructure in half, right? So, you know, using performance advantage to, in essence, do more with less, you know, is sort of the obvious benefit of what you can do with a performance benefit in the cloud. And so, um, as I mentioned before, our customers typically see somewhere between 20 to 50% reduction in their the compute the number of compute instances needed in the cloud when they simply change from the Oracle JDK to the uh, Azure Platform JD, the Azure Platform Prime JDK um, across a you know a variety of different applications. 
that is crazy and very significant. How did you guys get better at writing at JDK than Oracle themselves? Well, um, you know, I, I think like most um, innovative companies, um, we have an advantage of being singularly focused. And um, Oracle's a, an amazing company. I would love to grow Azul to be anywhere near the size of, of Oracle. I mean, they're, they're fantastic and, um, you know, obviously have, have done phenomenally well. But again, the challenge of companies as they get bigger and bigger is focus. And um, Oracle has a tremendous number of products. They've acquired countless companies. And so they have so much complexity to their business. It's obviously been very beneficial to them. They're, they're you know, one of the best of the best. However, the bigger you get, it does become harder and harder to be really good at you know, a certain number of things. And so I'd say overall, the reason that we have, you know, such uh, incredible differentiation relative to not just Oracle, but anyone is we are 100 percent focused on the Java platform. We are true experts in it. We hire the best of the best we have for years and years. And I think that but not you could even call it a maniacal focus, that maniacal focus on doing one thing exceedingly well, obviously has has benefit. And um um, you know, Oracle has fantastic engineers, IBM, Red Hat, you know, they also uh, provide a, a, a JVM. They have fantastic engineers, but those companies are just, they're just so big and they have so many other uh, things that they, they also need to, to um, you know, to develop and, and spend their engineering dollars on and, you know, take customer calls from. Inevitably, the bigger you get, the harder it is to be really good at a few number of things. And so, you know, the, that is the advantage of being a smaller company is that singular focus. And it's allowed us to hire, you know, truly, I, I would argue the best uh, JVM engineers in the world. And, and certainly we've been able to produce uh, the world's best JVM as a result. That's amazing. So for some context, um, how big is Azul right now? Number of employees? Uh, we're about 300 employees worldwide. Cool. And so I know earlier you mentioned that you're growing really fast. Um, do you have like a, a number hiring goal for the year, like uh, of engineers and employees in general? Yeah, generally speaking, um, from an employee growth rate, we're growing at about somewhere between 25 and 30 percent per year. You know, I, I believe that we will continue to do that for the foreseeable future, uh, maybe even actually, um, you know, exceed that uh, just just given the, how successful our business is. That's awesome. What are what are some ways that you're attracting the best of the best in, I mean, today's super competitive hiring market? Well, I think at the end of the day, people want to have passion about what they're doing and they want to work with great people. It really all comes down to that. You know, people, of course, make decisions based on compensation and, and you know, the, the hope for upside and, you know, those types of things. But when you really dig in, um, and of course, we're very competitive on those other aspects as well. But but people want to wake up in the morning and they want to have passion about what they're doing. And you know, one of the really interesting aspects about what we do is it's incredibly sophisticated software. It's very very challenging. It it really I think speaks to you know a, a very technical minded person who um, loves technology, um, loves challenges, uh, loves to compete loves to build, you know, the world's best products. 
And so as a result of that, we have we have very unique jobs that are just hard to find if you know you are really into uh, programming and really into um, you know performance uh, oriented uh, types of, of workloads and applications and and you know that sort of thing. We're very unique in that regard. Um, I think the other advantage that we've had is that we've always you know been very very distributed in terms of our our overall uh, workforce. So COVID for us was was really just a blip because we always were very very distributed. So we you know we we are based in Silicon Valley. We have a fantastic engineering team here, but we also are you know have various engineers throughout the world, and that flexibility in terms of truly hiring the best of the best wherever they are has really allowed us to build a tremendous team and and uh, that's our philosophy moving forward as well is you know don't don't be overly focused on only hiring people in silicon valley or what have you um you know we we find the best we hire the best and and we do the best we can to retain the best yeah i was just talking to a uh tech company in new zealand called zero that i uh, was talking about how the pandemic was actually really beneficial to them in terms of hiring because with because a lot of uh, New Zealanders in particular were realizing um, that that they can come back and live at home in New Zealand and work f- for any company they want, but that as a result uh, resulted in this specific company getting a lot of market share back with their hiring because it's just easier to work within time zones, but um, yeah, that, that was just feedback I've been getting, um, like from a lot of people. I, I think that's very consistent. I think I, I think the the new normal has been especially beneficial to those outside of the you know kind of typical metro areas that are you know that's usually where the best jobs are going to be. And um, you know, for those that are not living in metro areas, now realizing that they can get those same jobs working predominantly remotely. Uh, it's been a boon. Um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's been, you could think about it as a leveling effect um, where you don't have to be in Silicon Valley or New York or Boston or, you know, pick your other favorite tech hotspot. You don't have to be there to be able to, to still, you know, be able to work for the best companies, command fantastic salaries and, and ultimately do, you know, really interesting work. Yeah. I, I'm just waiting for Starlink to get good enough on uh, moving vehicles to be able to uh, really get solid connection um, in a in like a bus or something, then then we'll really be living. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, well, you, you marry that with autonomous driving, and you can be you can be coding while you're driving too. So that's coming. That's so yeah. long in the future. Yeah, that that would be quite the dream. That would be so fun. <laughs> but we covered pretty well um, what like Azul actually does. But I want to. I'm curious as to like what are the hard problems you're actively solving today? What are what are some of the stuff that your engineers are working on? Well, I, I think the next major phase um, that you know we're really looking at and, and beginning to introduce some products on is thinking holistically about about the Java programming language and about the Java platform, and you know really thinking about this in the context of a cloud world. Um, and as I mentioned before, Java was invented in the mid '90s, and it was really invented in a in a world that is quite different than the way it is today. That's an obvious statement to say that. At the time, the cloud didn't exist. Um, Java 
um, one of its hallmarks has been, you know, the fact that you can write it once and run it anywhere. And, um, that, you know, the, the, that's why JVM exists is that, you know, if you have a Java application, so long as the JVM is installed on a server, a desktop, a, a phone, a car, so long as the JVM exists, it can run that Java application. And so that was, you know, one of the, the true pioneering aspects of, of Java when it was developed. But Java was never envisioned to be thought of, you know, in a cloud context. And, and so as, as obviously the world has now moved to cloud, um, you know, we're doing a lot of, of um, thinking and planning about, you know, what does Java look like um, in a cloud world? And what does is, what is a cloud native JVM need to do? Um, so, you know, when an application right from the beginning is, is cloud first, you know, is only designed to be run in the cloud, has always been, um, you know, architected to be deployed in the cloud. If you remove the shackles of needing to run in a on-prem data center or, or another non-cloud environment and you're purely cloud first, what should the Java platform look like in that kind of context? Because that certainly, we believe, represents the majority of new application development moving forward is, is, a, is a cloud first architecture. And turns out there's a lot of different things that you can do uh, within the within the JVM to make for a, a yet yet more efficient uh, deployment capability, uh, knowing that the that the the application has been written uh, with the cloud in mind. And so we are continuing to add capabilities and features and and new elements of our product portfolio um, that are very focused on a cloud native JVM. For example, we recently introduced uh, a part of our platform prime product uh, that is called the cloud native compiler and what the cloud native compiler is all about is using the infinite resources uh, of the cloud in terms of being able to deliver a much more optimized runtime for the application and um, it's an example that Without the cloud, we wouldn't be able to offer this sort of level of capability. But with the cloud, and the fact that it's you know it's 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 part of a cloud native approach, um, you can now you know deliver yet much more optimizations. Um, you can you know be much smarter about oh this application was run yesterday and learn from what happened yesterday today when you when you deploy that application. You should have knowledge, you know, through artificial intelligence and other aspects in terms of, you know, not forgetting what happened yesterday, but absolutely, you know, use all the information that was available during yesterday's run today and make smarter decisions in terms of optimizations and, and overall um, improve efficiencies. And so the cloud native compiler is, uh, is our first um, product element that incorporates uh, a cloud native JVM vision. And that's a major theme for us moving forward in general is, is um, you know, really thinking about Java deployments in the cloud and what they really mean uh, and what it really means to be cloud native. So is that following that logic eventually going to mean like an entirely new JVM that you build that is just for the cloud, cloud native? Uh, absolutely. And doing it in a way that's fully compatible. Right. So, um, you know, and again, just like when you think about cloud native, it, it truly means that you don't have to worry about all the old stuff and, you know, all the compatibility that would normally go along with needing to run 
on you know older traditional servers, on-prem servers, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, absolutely a, a product that requires the cloud to run and takes advantage of the cloud to run is really what a cloud native JVM is all about. That makes a ton of sense. And I really look forward to um, like following along that journey because uh, it, it sounds like you guys are like building the back end of the future, um, which is just really, really cool. Well, it's, it's, it's on the one hand, it's, it's exciting, right? It, you know, some might say it's not the sexiest thing, right? Because we're like, I mentioned before, we're kind of like an operating system, right? Yeah. Is an operating system sexy? Probably not sexy, you know, in this day and age, but at the end of the day, operating systems are the backbone of everything that's run on anything, right? So, you know, we may not be in the, in the sexiest space, but it certainly is one that is profoundly important to every individual out there because we all use dozens, hundreds of different applications impact our lives, you know, every single day. And so, you know, that's what I think gets us excited about uh, the space that we're in and the overall market is, you know, just really being, you know, the, the, the mortar, if you will, of, of, uh, you know, the, the brick walls, which form the foundation of the enterprise. Yeah. I mean, you're, getting your hands into like every single industry in that affects our society like that is really exciting um with with a i mean as it goes with a lot of tech it's not something that the general public most of the time is super psyched on but um it, it's like kind of a a can be thankless work i mean to go back to how you're talking uh, comparing to the operating system uh, like yeah, everyone just kind of passively uses their OS, but when it stops working, then they're really mad. But they don't—they don't thank you when that's it works. Very, that's that, that's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> but so before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to touch on today that you want to make sure we get out to the world? I, I think you did a great job of, of uh, your questions, and um, and certainly you know touched on the topics that are very top of mind for us. Um, you know, certainly for those that are listening, um, you know, we encourage you to, to come by our website and take a look at Zool.com and, and check out the product offerings. Um, you know, Java is not what it, it, what it is now is not what it used to be. And there's a lot of new and innovative things that are happening you know, in the Java language and the Java platform. And uh, we encourage your listeners to, to come and check us out and, and uh, take us for a test drive. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.